Welcome to the Awakening Shalom Podcast. The Awakening Shalom Podcast is an opportunity for digital faith formation at Myers Park Baptist Church that accompanies the Awakening Series, a year-long journey of exploration and discernment which invites all people to come learn about the current social justice issues of the day and how they impact our faith. What we are awakening to is Shalom, the Hebrew word for the peace and beauty that exists when we are living in right relationship with God, ourselves, other human beings, and all created things. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Awakening Shalom podcast. We are in our final episode of our series, Theo, Political Creativity, Race, Faith, Class, and Politics. I am Mia McLean, and I'm here with Ben Boswell, and also <laughs> a special guest who's back with us. If you remember our series from earlier this year, um, we're excited to have this person back with us and we will introduce them a little bit later. Uh, but we've had a wonderful series, um, a lot of funny stories. I mean, we got Ben marching in formation to church. Um, <laughs> you see why I'm so messed up now. This is the problem. I have been right. informed inappropriately. Right. You have me campaigning for a pastor at one point back in that story. Uh, we had some special, um, what shall I call them? Impersonations of cartoon characters. Um, it's been very interesting. Um, we talked about abolition on episode two with Minister Candace Simpson from Brooklyn, New York, which was also very enlightening. So we've had a wonderful time. I'm excited to dive into this final topic, which is really going to focus on class. Um, as always, we open up with a quote and Ben, take it away. Well, you forgot that we talked about 19th century, century gender ideology. That was amazing. So we had so we've had we've been all over the place in this podcast, That's true. So far. and That's true. we're super excited to have Dr. Gerardo Marty with us uh, from Davidson University. And uh, is it Davidson College? You, you corrected me on that last time. I can't remember which one. Davidson College. Davidson College. Very proud liberal arts college. Yes. And um, Dr. Marty is a a, a well-known scholar and an incredible human being who has been with us on a number of our pilgrimages and participated in a lot of the awakening series, both on race and also on immigration and, and creation justice. And uh, it really is just uh, wonderful to have you with us again on the podcast. Um, and I think just most excited about digging into your, some of the work from your book and some of the work you're currently and continuing to doing after writing your book, American Blindspot, right here. If you have not read this book yet, you will not understand what's about to happen in two weeks. And um, so I, I encourage everyone to catch up on the last four years that they don't understand and by reading Dr. Marty's book, because it's not just the last four years that, that helps us understand the Trump presidency, but the last, what is, would you say, 300 years, 200 years of American, three to two, 200, 300 years of American history to really get a sense of how we got to where we are. Uh, and that context is super important. And that really leads me to this quote that I want to start off with from the conclusion of your book, American Blindspot. Um, and it, it because it goes all the way back to the beginning. And it's, this quote really sticks with me. Since the beginning of the American Republic, with its intertwining of commerce and the institution of slavery, and then the later rise of corporate business models and financialization, Evangelicals largely aligned themselves with capitalist interest. Capitalists welcomed the moral affirmation stemming from sympathetic, business-friendly white evangelicals. Although asset-rich capitalists are a minority of Americans whose asset-based wealth accumulation is historically dependent on the exploitation and expropriation of the majority's labor, as evidenced by the long-standing depression in wages in comparison with the astronomical and continued rise of corporate profits and the increased wealth gap of the top 1%, white evangelicals from the times of slavery until now have shown that they readily align with government leaders who are willing to support their policy initiatives. Wealthy neoliberals and white evangelicals affinities and grievances unite in a push against government intervention and perceived overreach, for example, over issues like taxation and religious liberty. And then you quote from Sheldon Wolin, one of my favorite political theorists who said, in its political aspect, a community is held together 
not by truth, but by consensus. Hmm. That quote really, to me, is sort of an, it's an overarching quote, right? Uh, a summarization of much of your book, which tries to describe the marriage of white evangelicals and economic libertarianism together. And I wonder if you could just describe for us, help us understand, you know, as a church and as progressive, we talk a lot about race and a lot about white evangelicals' relationship to the question of race. And we're probably more aware of the history of race than we are of, say, the history of economic policy in American history and, and relationship of religion to that. Help us understand better that, that relationship. Hmm. Well, thanks so much. And it's really good to be here. I've so benefited from the ministry of Myers Park Baptist and I'm continuing to learn and grow. This, these dialogues have been so, so great just to reflect and to think. And what I love is that so often you're bringing things to my attention that I don't always have time to think about, you know, I'm just busy going through my day dealing with my own stuff. And when it comes to understanding economic history, um, most people really like choke and go, oh my gosh, I don't really like economics. It was my least favorite class. I don't understand. Please don't do this to me. And even in my own classes, when I say, okay, we're going to walk through some things and I say anything that has economic in it and they panic. Uh, and what I find is that uh, because it's so easy to get wrapped up in understanding economic policies, economic history, tax, tax code, or things like that, that, that it's almost easier to grasp onto the American history of race than it is to understand the American history of economics. And I am not interested in confusing people or giving a bunch of like supply demand curves. What I'm interested in is the reality that we live in is based on the reality that we think is true. And what we don't recognize is that there have been realities that have been proffered about how economics works, how our economy is supposed to work, how we're supposed to be um, earning money, the kind of the way that jobs work, the way corporations work, and the big C capitalism, how capitalism works. And we are mystified and swallowed up with a lot of mythology about how capitalism works in America. And so my attempt has been to say, you know, we can't understand this because the ideas that have guided our economics in America have had radical consequences on the ability for people to actually gain wealth, to be able to just live their lives, pay their bills, own a home, send their kids to college, afford health care, everything that matters. And so I'm not talking about the ability to get to buy a mansion or a yacht. I'm talking about the ability to live our day to day life. And there have been a lot of things that we need to grasp onto, particularly the way in which Christianity in America, white Christianity has oriented it itself around a set of economic ideas. And once we understand that, then I think that we'll be surprised at how often it comes up in sermons. It's everyday talk um, among Christians in Bible studies. Um, it is something that's in our books, and it's an unquestioned assumption about what is the Christian way to do uh, economics, you know? And so if I pose it in the simplest way, it's, is capitalism a Christian thing? That clear question, I think that the great majority of Christians in America would say, of course, because for them, the alternative to capitalism is socialism or communism. And obviously, communism is godless and, you know, is not something it is oppresses God. And we we know that people have been killed in these countries. And so obviously we're not communists. So therefore we're capitalist. And so capitalism becomes a sanctified notion even though the actual workings of capitalism, most people really don't understand. And that would be kind of my beginning point from there. I mean, mm -hmm. is that helpful so far? Yeah, that's exactly where we want to go. I mean, we want to understand that sec how that gets, how capitalism becomes sacred and where that begins. Uh, because obviously, you know, based on just a plain reading of the New Testament in Acts 2 and 4 and Jesus's many writings on money, um, it would not be, it's not self-evident reading off the page in what the Baptist would call the plain sense reading of the text. Uh, 
mm-hmm. where th- this is what gets confusing is because, you know, evangelicals historically have said they read the plain sense. Mm-hmm. They read right. the plain sense of the text. They just read what's there. Right. And, but based on the plain sense, you would not automatically jump to hit this place. In fact, some might say socialism or some form of communism might be a more, you know, obvious, you know, move from Acts 2, Acts 4, Jesus's parables. Um right. You know, and so, you know, how do we get to this point where the plain sense is not the logical outcome in our relationship? Right. Well, I think that we can leverage the fact that people do have a better understanding of race, perhaps, than they do the kinds of things that I want to talk about in Christian libertarianism. But let's go back. First of all, most of us are aware that when um, America was discovered, okay, that this was done under a papal decree that the world belonged to God, the the Pope is the representative of God, and so therefore the representatives of the Pope can go and take command of the land, of the resources, and of the people. And so all of these things are intertwined already in a sacred sense that these are the people who already own all of the earth on God's behalf. And so being owned on God's behalf, that means that I can go in and I can take the land, take the resources, and take the people because the people themselves were enslaved and Mm -hmm. which is fascinating that then we no longer need to think we have to shift out of thinking of people as people which is what we should be thinking of we have to remember that they were seen as property forms of property and they were divided right right from the beginning and uh, so then when we see these idyllic pictures of these um you know ships and they're just engaging with these you know indigenous no no they they set those people aside and they said okay these people are going to go to this commander this people are going to go to this person and they would allot people just the way that they allotted the gold and other things so fast forward to slaveholder christianity slaveholder christianity was less about trying to get a godly perspective on why slaves could be owned. It was the fact that slaves were owned. They were property. You could take out mortgages against them. You could put them on a payment plan. You could, you, um, could of course, breed them and sell more of them. So slaveholder Christianity was an economic institution. And when you look at somebody like John Calhoun and the way in which he argued for slaveholding, he argued it on the basis of the protection of private property. So once you see that the economic aspect is already embedded in in there, then it's not hard to then move into the Reconstruction and latter 19th century when you see that um, there's a sense of private property. I manage my private property the way I want. Well, I don't want Black people to be in my private property. I don't want to hire them. I don't want them in my restaurants. I don't want them in my hotels. I don't want them on my roads and bridges. And so... Um, Even the command of people who took over entire state governments and rewrote the constitutions to say, we don't want any black people in our state because Mm -hmm. this state is not meant for you, you know, and it was built into then housing covenants later. So we know that like the one in Myers Park, there was a restrictive covenant in our neighborhood, right? That's right. We, we, that we can pull up those deeds and take a look at the language that was used explicitly. So that continuity, okay, all the way from the doctrine of discovery, all the way through to the mid 20th century, at least, we can see how the orientation of property rights actually had visible consequences on racial oppression and racial injustice. And so if you understand race, it's not hard for you then back into how does that relate to the issue of economics? Because what white conservative Christians began to do is instead of fighting against the uh, giving rights to black people, what they began to do was assert their own property rights. And they would say, I have the ability to do with what I want to with my own property, which included my money. So then from the New Deal, in reaction to the New Deal, it became, what do I do with the money that I have earned, I have profited? And people began to see their monies as something that they should have discretion over what to do. Therefore, the federal government should not decide what to do with my private property. It's like a reorientation to what taxation meant. 
And that's what leads us then to understand Friedrich Hayek and the beginnings of libertarianism uh, and neoliberalism. Mm. Because then once you get there, see, Friedrich Hayek wrote a book called, um, you know, Serfton. It was um, uh, very famous. I can show you a pic, The Road to Serfdom. So I'm going to show you. Yeah, this book, Road to Serfdom, was being taught in accounting courses, in MBA courses right now at Campbell University. I can tell you this firsthand. firsthand. It's being, I think it's pretty much a, like, it's the, it's a predominant text in MBA classes and economics classes still today, right? Right, right. This is the, so you can see this and your screen shows you uh, yeah. Hayek's book. So yeah. Friedrich Hayek was a man who wrote this manifesto. It's actually not a technical economic book at all. It is a manifesto. And he lived through uh, Nazi Germany, which by the way, remember Nazi is short for uh, National Socialist Party. And so what at that point it meant was it was a command economy. It was about Nazi Germany being able to take over every aspect of the economy that it needed in order to mobilize it for its own uses, okay? And that's an aspect of totalitarianism is that they uh, take everything that's in the government um, and everything in their nation as if it's theirs and they can do with it whatever they want. So not socialism in like the public parks and social security sense, but in the like top-down totalitarian Stalinism sense, right? Absolutely. And so uh, both Stalinist communism and Nazi Germany socialism are equated as totalitarian systems. Yeah. Because what they do is they take away the discretion of people for what to do with their own private property. And so then Hayek made a very bold claim that what we needed to do is we need to reclaim economic liberty and that economic liberty should be the foundations of our human rights. Um, and so it became this really grand narrative that was in response to the context of Nazi Germany, but in the American system, it became reinterpreted so that now FDR becomes like a totalitarian leader. Mm. And that if FDR and these elites in government <clears throat> are taking of the wealth from the wealthy in order to do whatever they want to do with it, which was, of course, to build roads and bridges, to employ people, to provide national... Build the middle class in America. Exactly, build the middle class, all these different things. But they, they began to say, no, that's the intrusion of big business doing something that we don't want to have done because that takes away our discretion for what we're supposed to do. And now this is a very interesting development because most people don't know or, or maybe don't remember that it was Lincoln's Republican Party that created taxation. And it's Lincoln's Republican Party that used that taxation to do the land grants and to do the, uh, the public universities that we're also proud of, as well as railroads and you know expansion of the economy westward, et cetera. That's where all that came from. So for most of American history, any money that the government had to use came from wealthy people. I mean, even when they sold westward lands and territories, that money was sold to wealthy people who could auction, out auction everybody else. And that money is what went to the federal government for it to use, okay? So government has always used dominantly, but ever since the New Deal, the New Deal, the effort on the part of the wealthy has always been to push down the cost of government as far down as possible so that the burden of taxation is felt on everybody else and not just the wealthy. And so that's- Is that, a, is that considered like a rich people's movement then the reaction to the new deal would be- Absolutely, absolutely. It, it, so uh, this idea of rich people's movements is an interesting notion because sociologists typically use the word movement to talk about those who have been more marginalized or oppressed. And so they organize together in order to make an impact. That's what the civil rights movement, you know, the women's movement would be. But rich people's movements are not as known. And it's a little bit odd to think that wealthy people who are very wealthy in America have organized together in order to exert their pressure for an America that they want to see. And their America is one where they're paying little to nothing of their private wealth and at the same time still benefit from all kinds of advantages that the federal government gives because the federal government over our history has been very generous 
to corporations and to wealthy people. About half of the railroad land was given to private corporations and private people, for example. Um, and we use things like uh, subsidies. Subsidies is, is money that's given out, right? It's tax money that's given to businesses or farms or other corporations. And when we elect not to collect taxes that we could collect, so we say, we want um, this big corporation to come to our city. And guess what? We're not going to take your tax. Uh, we're not going to collect taxes from you. You know, uh, We want you so much that we're not going to take any money from you. And mm -hmm. billions and billions of dollars are given up on the part of uh, all kinds of you know, municipalities all across America in the hopes of bringing jobs. I think that's usually what it is. But we know that the equation is a bit mixed because it may lead to the profit of the corporation. That doesn't necessarily mean an expansion of jobs that go to the community. So that sense of uh, wanting to own, um, use our ownership of our assets then became its own movement so that in the libertarian movement, classically defined, just which is really just mid-century, it is the idea that Wealthy people, knowing that they were in the minority of the American population, were afraid that the majority of people in a democratic system would vote, use the political system, to take advantage of the wealth that they had. Mm. And they, that's when they started to see themselves as oppressed minorities. Now, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Neil. Dr. Marty, um, so you're talking about this, and I'm, just, I'm fresh off of Twitter, as usual, and um, <laughs> and there is a rapper on Twitter who is telling people to vote for Trump because this some some poorly formed slides or picture of some something about Biden raising taxes, right? And so some rapper who's trying to protect his wealth is is talking about how now we all should go vote for Trump because Trump's not going to raise my taxes. Can you make the? I mean, you're making the connection for me, and I mean. Yes, I get it. I can see it. Would this be considered some sort of nouveau rich movement? Or I mean, I, I feel like a lot of the people who are speaking out, who are celebrities in support of Trump, are, are speaking out regarding wealth and, and concerned about taxes. And even though they have misinformation, but that's another story. Yeah, right, right. Well, uh, let me show you one other slide. This is more of a reminder than anything else, because I think most of us have seen um, something like this. So can you all see this distribution mm -hmm. of family wealth? Yeah. This amazing. is not the only one. You could find this, you know, anywhere, Google it. There's a wonderful video that talks exactly about this. But what you can see out of this is to recognize that the great, great, great majority of Americans don't really have that much money. No. So when you talk about like the median um, income or median wealth, it's really not that much, you know, could be 50,000, 60,000, something like that, it varies. And we also know that it differs by racial group. So we know that whites are, have the highest wealth and, and blacks and Latinos have the lowest. And then Asian, you actually have to disaggregate because uh, if you're from India and you're here for uh, work, then you're gonna be earning higher incomes. Same with Chinese often Japanese and Korean. But when it comes to Cambodians, Laotians, Thai, you know, Thai, Filipino, all these other groups, they have far less wealth, even though they're lumped into the Asian American category. That all has to do with historic oppressions that we've had from the Chinese Exclusion Act, the fact that the, the Chinese weren't even allowed to have citizenship until 1952 in America, and then that expanded out to Asia, other Asian groups later. Uh, but when you start to look at the distribution of wealth, the bottom line is it's really hard to make any money, really. And so wealth ends up being um, something you have to factor in because wealth has to do with asset wealth, how much money you have invested in property, taxes, like your IRA or a retirement account, something like that. And only half of Americans have anything at all in the stock market. I mean, that's, at all. That's why like the stark difference between say, like the estimated net worth, when you start looking at net worth of a family, the estimated net worth of a black family in America is sort of like, is like in, in $17,000. Yes, exactly. An estimated net worth of a white family is on average about $170,000. That's right. And you, it's so wild. 
that's usually invested in their home, right? right. So home. that's that's where you have may have someone who has a you know three hundred thousand dollar home, but if you owe two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, then that means you only have fifty percent. Um, I'm sorry, fifty thousand dollars of wealth in there. Okay, well let's add student loans. Let's add car loans. Mm. Let's add. Um, anything that you may owe on medical bill, bills. All, it's very easy then to get to zero or negative, which quite a few Americans have. And those one of those Americans. Yeah, negative estimated wealth, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And so, and so then, and then we don't understand that generational wealth, if you've ever studied redlining or the housing industry, we know that generationally, some groups have had the opportunity to be able to pass along asset-based wealth through inheritance. Now, I don't have that. I know I won't have that. Um, and there are many others who do not. But some people, that's what they count on so that when they buy their first home, they've been able to benefit from their parents or their grandparents who have some generational wealth and they can right. give them $10,000 or $20,000 or more. For their first down payment on their home. Started. Gets them a loan at a particular rate, which then builds a wealth. Yeah, and I think I read yesterday in a new study that came out that basically... 90 something percent of a wealth in America is tied to inherited wealth. Exactly. So there's like, there's this myth of the meritocracy, right? Where we're going to be able to all earn this wealth in our lifetime. If we just play by the rules and go get a college degree and get a job, then we'll be able to go down this particular path, this American dream path. And, you know, two thirds of Americans still don't have a college education. So that's the first thing. And the second part of that is actually most wealth is inherited. That's right. Which means we didn't do anything to get it except be born into the right family. That's right. And so then if you look at this graph, and I'll take it off in a moment, but if you look at the far right, this money that's invested in assets grows faster than wages. And so we feel lucky if we get a, a raise of 2% or 3%, you know, 5% for some people is like ecstatic. But when you dedicate your asset wealth into the stock market or into other property value, your expectations of gain are much higher. Mm -hmm. And even if your average is 7%, but many people have far more than that, the studies have shown that asset-based wealth grows faster than income growth. And that means that as the inequalities are existing, they continue to widen over time because assets will always be a benefit to you. You don't really have to have anything other than to keep it, you know, and to make some wise use of it here and there. But that's what gives you then the leverage to borrow more, which then allows you to invest more, which mm -hmm. allows you then to build more and more wealth. Yeah. So yeah. that then becomes important for us because we're, for, once we start to understand that, then we begin to say, okay, uh, hard work is not enough. Hard work isn't the thing that gets you ahead. And, and what, what, the, what Christianity has done since it rejected the social gospel movement in the early part of the 20th century, when it's, when it, when at the social gospel, there was an assumption that businesses were self-seeking and, <laughs> you know, there were a lot of new immigrants that taken advantage of, you know, cheap labor. Right. And, and so the social gospel was like, we have to take care of people. We have to watch out for them. And we have to look at the systems that are put in place for the implications that it has on what happens in the real lives of people, how they live, how they eat, what happens to their children. Right. So, One of the great stories from that time that I remember not to interrupt you, but is it's Carnegie, Carnegie story, right? Where the, at the end of his life, he dies and he's donated all these universities and libraries and all this stuff. And he's made this huge philanthropic gift. And somebody interviews a person that worked in his factories and just says, you know, what, aren't you just so impressed that uh, Carnegie has given all this away. And he says, I just, I just wish he'd pay us more. Wow. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't buy shoes for my kid. Wow. Wow. You know, so that just to think about philanthropy in relationship to what you're saying, the philanthropy will never make up for it either. No, no, There's no. no way. No, no, that's, that's very clear. Philanthropy doesn't work in part because there isn't enough of it. Um, I mean, uh, studies show that Americans at most give maybe 2% of their income which is not much at all. And we also know that because of the way charity works in America, people have choices about what they consider to be a charity and what they'll <laughs> give to, right? So, so that's difficult. But in, in terms of the social gospel or, uh, era, 
at that same time when we were fighting against communism, there were threats of socialism because um, as the injustices among workers took place, the only people advocating for those workers were socialists. It was, it was the Communist Party. And so it's very interesting that when you look at the history of the uh, Communist Party in the United States, um, it was less about attempting to overthrow the government and somehow, you know, have Russia come in or whatever. It was the only successful movement to advocate for the rights of black people and to actually look at the economic welfare of those at the bottom. And right. so that's why even today, when we talk about issues related to racial oppression, many people still talk about that as a form of Marxism or that they're advocating socialism. It, it has a historic root in that, yes, these were the only people actually cared for. Well, right, because, and that's why the KKK was against unions and yeah. against communism, not that's just, right. that's you, right. that was another way of attacking the black community. That's right. By attacking unions. That's right. And so after we racialized immigration by keeping everybody out except white people or the people who were the most acceptable white people, then the next step was to remove anybody who had socialist sympathies. Hmm who came from governments or who, who would agitate or become party. And that they used um, immigration legislation to try to keep those people out. So at the same time, you have wealthy businessmen uh, who are Christians who began to create their own movement of saying, you know what? Christianity is actually godly. This is what God would have us to do, you know? And Jesus talked about making investments and there's the parable of the talents and et cetera, et cetera. And so they start to then innovate curriculum for churches and they side with clergy who also sympathized with them and began to and these this includes people like pew and um well there's just a whole host of names that you would recognize once you look at them and these are all christian people who who partner with people like norman vincent peel mm. to mm. innovate curriculum to show that capitalism was actually a godly system and that was so successful that by the mid 50s they put in god we trust on our money mm. that's a movement that took place and so wealthy business people poured their money into the ministries that they approved of and that resonated with the things that they wanted to see and so norman vincent peel um his uh disciple if you will robert h Schuler in california who and ultimately built the crystal cathedral i wrote a book about that with my yeah. colleague Mark Mulder um, to show how that worked and how the financial philosophy worked within that church. Um, and uh, Billy Graham, Billy Graham did not build his ministry on the basis of a few dollars in a bucket that was passed down the aisle. <laughs> All right, it was wealthy businessmen. This has been shown. I have the books right over here. Um, wealthy businessmen who poured into this ministry. And so then they advocated this idea that in order to be a Christian, you need to support the economic system that we have because that is a godly system that to be patriotic right was to actually affirm that as what america was and that you needed to just work harder you needed to be a good moral person but you also needed to work much harder that was a part of your character and if you didn't make it in america it wasn't because there was something wrong with america it's because there's something wrong with you mm. and that's where the pathologization of black people black families really expanded in the 1960s because we could not believe that it had to do with the system that we have in place. We didn't understand. People didn't pay attention to asset-based wealth and how it operated. People had utterly ignored the fact that uh, people were denied uh, university admission, um, entry into all kinds of trades and occupations, that unions excluded uh, people of color from belonging by and large. So there were all these mechanisms of potential advancement, and we left out the housing covenants, the ability to get a loan, what that looks like. So by the time you get to this 1960s, where you're affirming the godliness and the integrity of an economic system that must be good, because after all, we're America, and we won the war, and we're definitely not communists. But we also then say, then if you're not able to succeed in what apparently is in their minds, a meritocracy, everybody can make it, you just need to get out there, you know, and, and get in there. They start to say, well, then it must be in the character of the people. Maybe it's biology, maybe they're mm -hmm. less intelligent, because even now surveys will still say a significant number of people believe that black people are naturally less intelligent than white people. 
But if it's not in biology, it must be because their culture is bad. And so what you see among the conservative black Republicans, conservative black Christians who advocate this, they also argue not on the basis of biology because they are black, they argue on the basis of culture that we need to change and shift our people, our culture and teach them so that they can actually be uh, the kind of people that they need to be in order to succeed in what they just assume is a godly system. Mm. So I wanted to, I was just thinking this before you said this. So I've, what I found so difficult to wrestle with, because, which, I, which is why I think we should focus more on class as opposed to race in some of these conversations, is that there is a growing elite class of Black folk in this country. Some of them are Black conservative Republicans. Some of them are Black Democrats who probably teeter moderate, right? Um, but, it, you know, for example, in this city, it's been very hard to organize. It's very hard to point this out when people are homeowners and they think that they are out of the rat race, which they aren't. I don't know if y'all know the board game Cash Flow. Mm and you move your little your little mouse around the board and you have to get out of the rat race in order to like begin having investments and do the things that you've been talking about, Dr. Marty. Um, I think most people think because they've been told this lie by the church, oh, be, you have a homeowner. You're a homeowner now, you've made it. Mm -hmm. So the rest of your culture who isn't doing that is just, they're not working hard enough. And they don't even have a concept that you're not out of the rat race and you're probably never going to be out of the rat race because... <laughs> That's just how the country's set up. What do we do with this? How do we even bring this information that you have to people? Well, I, I find it to be, first of all, I find it that people are so amazed when they learn just certain basic things. They, they go, how come I never heard this before? And then, and then the next pass is, oh, well, that actually makes sense. Now I understand. And they'll talk about um, that their families had not trusted the bank system because they had been taken advantage of for generations. And so there are still people who keep money like in picture frames and, and in mattresses because they don't trust the banks. So then once you get over that and you go, okay, maybe I can trust my money into um, investing and in a banking system and purchase a home, that is a significant leap for a lot of people. Okay, so we kind of see that as good news when people are willing to invest, problem. Problem is that we still see that can't, contracts are written differently and people have been taking advantage of. In 2007, if we learn nothing more, we learned that different people get different kinds of loans, right? Not every home owner and home, um, and home loan is the same, same as like car loans and everything. And mm. because of that, we know that predatory lending and um, what uh, one uh, book, there's a book called Race for Profit that's fantastic. It talks about predatory inclusion. It takes the values of our wanting to be homeowners and to have security and to finally get what we think is our piece of the American dream and the way in which mortgage companies, uh, private uh, interests, as well as even the federal government have aligned in order to take advantage of people who want to own a home. And I know how this works. I remember once when I was sitting to buy a car and somebody said, you can afford that more than that. Aren't you smart? Aren't you going to do well? Aren't you going to get a raise? I mean, they did everything possible to <laughs> flatter me into a, a, a bigger car, bigger payment, which I guess in a way I could have gone, sure, because I believe in myself, right? But actually it's a part of a system that wants me to have more debt to buy into a system where I'm further under, because what we need to know is a loan is not good for me. A mm. loan is good for the person that I'm paying the loan back to, which is asset-based wealth, right? right. <laughs> and that's where we have to always be smarter about these things so that when we re realize, even if we feel like we're doing okay, we can be placed in a system that is actually taking advantage of our greater earning power because our greater earning power only leaves us open to a different kind of exploitation. And that's the sad news that comes from a book like The Color of Money by Mirsa Baradan, because this book is fantastic in showing how the emphasis on black capital and the emphasis on local black businesses has actually um, created a system where we create the businesses and we allow black people to become entrepreneurs and things like that. But most of the money 
goes back to white communities. Most of the money goes back to enrich white-based asset wealth. It's a sad story, you know? It's a sad story because it runs so deep, runs so deep. And if you never question that the system that we have is anything but godly, then it's a problem. So then the next people who sneak in are the prosperity preachers. Because what prosperity preachers do not do is they never question the integrity of the American system. They always assume that the American economy is the right place for us to be. It's the right thing to do. And so all you need to do is to believe more in yourself, to work harder, and to trust God, which I think is another euphemism for trust the economic arrangement. Of the free hand of the market. Exactly, exactly. Which which is, of course, a lie, because if it was free, then there would be no companies that would need to have tax, have a tax shelter to get incentives to move into a city, right? Like, why would we have to give them a tax break if they're a major corporation, if the market was free? We're manipulating the market to our own devices all the time and then pretending it's free and calling it free, just like we're doing with God. It's similar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we needed any evidence that we don't have a free market, it would be the trillion dollar bailout that was given to companies. Like we're going to give you a loan, but you actually don't have to pay it back. Okay, that that's not that's not a loan, right? (laughs) It's not a loan. And it's amazing how much money immediately was seen as the solution, right? Right. We want to protect our asset-based wealth. That's what protecting the economy is, protecting the asset-based wealth. We could have given that money directly into the hands of people. We could have said, you know what? We're going to make healthcare free for a while. You know, we're going to forgive loans. and loan debt. Yeah, we could have given that back to everybody lost the home. All kinds of things, right? But no, instead it's how can, what can we do to prop up things which then corporations do to buy back their stock and, you know, do other things to, to, because their responsibility is not to workers. It's not even to America. It's to their shareholders. Right. Right. And so again, it's the focus on, on uh, asset-based wealth. And that's what I think is obfuscated by Christian libertarianism. The alignment of Christians who believe that the, the country that we're living, it's a Christian country in their minds as a Christian country and capitalism is Christian. And so anything that we do in order to keep up our Christian um, capitalism is good. And so that's why I always thought that the reopening of the businesses and the reopening of the economy, I'm sorry, the reopening of the businesses and the reopening of churches Mm. came from the same impulse. It was a Christian libertarian impulse that we need to have the freedom and uh, of economics to be able to do what we want. And that's what churches do. Freedom to live our convictions um, with faith and courage and just move forward with that. And then the world would be okay, you know, because who is it that's suffering? It's the weak. It's the people right. who aren't contributing to our economy anyways. So, yeah, so yeah. that's, that's uh, the ugliness of it. It seems like there's, there's differing notions of freedom, right, that are at play that have to be uh, examined and a, and a radical kind of individualism that I don't think is merited by the gospel. That, that is at the heart of a lot of this, right? So when Mia, you talked about sort of how do we get to this, you know, black capitalism is the answer, you know, um, that it's like a, the logical extension of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism written by Weber, right? Like it's, it, this is where this idea that if you just work hard, the system itself of capitalism will reward your hard work as an individual. We, of course, the system itself doesn't do that right? We know that now. The system doesn't do that. The system is set up in a different way to reward a different kind of thing, to reward inheritance and asset-based money, like you were talking about, asset-based wealth. And so, but when we have been taught to think of the world as individuals and what it does for me, we can't see the system for what it's doing for everybody. Mm -hmm. We miss a systemic analysis that is necessary for it. And so, and Christianity should be helping us look at systemic analysis. But of course, Christianity has also been privatized and individualized as well, alongside of the privatization and individualization of conversations around economics. Yes. And, and that, that lack of systemic analysis impacts both areas and leaves us unable to see ourselves at, contextually in the broader structure. So then it just becomes about me and Jesus. That's right. Right. It's just me and my, it's just me and my God. And I don't really have to worry about my other, my fellow believers 
you know, in the community of faith. Uh, certainly not even in my own church, right, where the wealthy businessman sits alongside the poor person on Sundays singing whatever praise song they sing or hymn. But they don't have to care about their brothers and sisters and neighbors in, in Christ across town either, as if they are members of the same family, because family and, it, and me and myself and getting what's mine and taking care of me has become the priority. That's right. It's radical individualization. That's what uh, the shift of Christianity, uh, modern Christianity has been. And let's take a moment to say that the only growing aspect of Christianity today are non-denominational evangelical uh, white churches. They are the only ones that are sustaining. Why? I believe that part of the answer is that they have an image in their minds of who they're preaching to. And who, this is who it is. It is the lonely ec uh, executive <clears throat> who is working their way up the ladder in a hotel room preparing for their next sales presentation. <laughs> that is the person that they're talking to. It's a person who is isolated, somewhat lonely, trying to figure out how to scramble to the next thing, concerned about their self-presentation, knowing they have obligations at home, but they are trusting that if they can sell this thing, if they can move it forward, that the system will reward them and they will continue to move up the economic ladder, supposedly gaining more economic security. And so once I see it through that, then you can see all of the therapeutic talk, all of the trust and faith in God, all of the encouragement to just keep going, all of the positive egoistic self images about you and Jesus and what God wants for you and God wants to prosper you, etc. all starts to coalesce. It is an image of a mid-century um, white collared business person, traveling salesman kind of person who has a wife and kids at home and is not quite sure how they're going to meet the mortgage, but they know that this is what they've got to do. And that feeds into so many other things because it feeds into other things that I know you care about. It feeds into notions about what a family looks like. Mm. It feeds into a notion about gender and gender roles. Um, it feeds into a notion of how kids are to respond to things. You know, uh, I mean, it just, and, and it's overwhelming that the economic system is fine it's just that you've got to, you know, find well, a way to thread this needle and make you're it. You're right. It feeds into everything, including like, like there's these great books now written about pastoral care. How can you do pastoral care in a neoliberal world when you've been told you're the problem, but you're not the problem, right? Mm -hmm. When you've been told that personal responsibility is the way out, but in fact, it's not the way out. It's a trap. Mm -hmm. How do you do pastoral care in an age when everything in society is telling you, look inside if you want to know how, what the problem is, but in reality, the problem is exterior to you. Mm -hmm. It's systematic, right? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean and look like to do pastoral care to people who are in different places on the economic spectrum in a world of interiority, when in reality, the problem is external? It's That's system. right. That's right. Because it doesn't prepare us for betrayal. It doesn't prepare us for the ongoing exclusion. It doesn't prepare us for seeing that certain people are making decisions based on things that I have no control over. And, uh, and it also has no way of conceptualizing the broader um, sort of invisible abstract uh, issues that are happening in the financial markets, in the mm -hmm. way in which public policy is established and who's being favored and why, and all these different kinds of things. So overnight, tax codes can change overnight, um, uh, different kinds of benefits that uh, appeal to different people overnight, whole mergers and retransitions can happen in entire uh, corporations. And that will ultimately impact you. Mm -hmm. And even if you did everything right, even if it was a great presentation, you know, even if you did everything you were supposed to, the whole rug can be pulled out from under you. Uh, because the, the, all the things that you think you have control over really is not something you can quite control. It really rests not on a faith in God. It really has a faith in our broader economic system. And what we, have, what we, know, what we know from the 1960s forward is that uh, wages have not gone up. We know our debt has gone way up. And we know that the kinds of things that people expect us to buy into continue to increase as necessities. Mm -hmm. and, and so we are all battling 
um, not how much um, how much debt we have because we have to choose like which kind of debt to take. Most of us don't have the option of not taking any debt at all. You know, right. I mean, right. it was ludicrous. Um, not too long ago, a friend of mine said, "You should pay cash for your house." I said, "You are you're ridiculous." I said, <laughs> "How much did you pay for your house?" He said, uh, seventeen thousand dollars." He paid more for his van, minivan, than he did for his house. And I said, yes, because we're living in an entirely different time. You can't expect people to accrue $300,000 in cash in their lifetime. And this is true for almost everything else. And so we're taught to think of it as investments. We're going to make an investment right. in, or, in order. And, and some investments, I think, are good, okay? And you have to be smart. But don't let somebody talk you into an investment just so that they can make sure that you get the loan that they want you to get, mm. right? Mm. That's, that's, I think, part of the, the difficulty. <laughs> so we're on this trail here where uh, people are expected to vote for somebody in a couple of weeks if they haven't already. And there's, there's kind of two parties that are wrestling, not two political parties, we know that, but there's two kind of camps of people who are not Republican, I should say, who are wrestling with we just got to get this person out of office and all of our problems are going to be solved. Mm. And then there are people like me that's like, <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter who we vote for. That house I just drove by this morning is still going to be $800,000 and I can't buy it, right? So I'm kind of in that party. Yes, I'm going to go vote. Uh, but what do you say to people who are seeing this very clearly as you're, as you're describing this to them? Yeah, well, I think part of it is, first of all, making it in life is hard. And I think we can acknowledge that if you're having difficulty, if you feel the strain, if somehow it's not coming together, it's not because you did something wrong. Th this, is, this is the system that most of us just live in. And that's a message of grace everybody needs to hear, I think. Right? I, I think so. And it's different from saying, oh, are you struggling? Well, then you need to reach out to God. I don't think we need to affirm that everybody's just struggling. I think it's just, we need to recognize that life is hard, that there is a hardness to living in the system, especially in a time when economic inequality continues to expand dramatically. Mm. A, a second thing that I think is important is that um, when I looked at the top 1% of wealth, what I found is that among the top 1% of wealth, half of those people still have a job and gain income. Now, what do I take from that? What I take from that is that 99.5% of the population work or feel like they should work in order to earn a living. And that means that they feel like they have worked to earn what they have. But anybody who is earning at these multiple amounts and with bonuses because of where they're located and we're able to get those jobs often because of friends and networks and connections that they have, there needs to be an acceptance that different people are working at different rates for a very different scale of pay. Mm -hmm. And not just say, well, I work for what I have. I understand that and I can affirm that people work. I, I get that. But there are some people who have benefited in really different ways in comparison with other people. Because when we look at the phenomenal sources of wealth that exist among the asset-based class, I don't think that we can justify it only on the amount of hours that you've put in mm. um, or the strategy that you took or something like that. There are certain things that were of benefit to you. And we know on the basis of other studies of social stratification that people who have great wealth also have great advantages, sometimes because they've been able to see or been informally mentored or because their family has been involved in this and they have access to being able to get certain kinds of things that other people don't, you know? And so when Donald Trump would say, I just got a small loan from my dad of a million dollars, you know, <laughs> I mean, we laugh because we go, yeah, he may see that as small in relation to his parents' wealth and in relation to the wealth around. But for most of us, wow, that's an incredible amount of money that most of us don't have the ability to take advantage of. So I think that there's a sense in which we need to recognize, yes, we all work, but yet some people who work, like there's a difference in that situation. So what can we do? On our, on our part, we all need to get a lot smarter. 
Um, the gig economy doesn't work for everybody and we need to know why it doesn't work. We need to know that if we accept the conditions of this job, that we may be accepting something and not be fully aware of all the consequences that come with it um, mm. and still look at other alternatives. There are people who are still lured into certain things because they think they'll make a lot of money very quickly in a short period of time. But um, building a career is very different from doing something quick that gets you a lot of cash up front. And learning to do that now and do, seeking any opportunity you can to do that through retraining opportunity, expanding your networks, which is particularly important among people of color, that is really important. And then I think we have to take a generational look. I think our churches and um, our all of our networks, we need to be able to teach our kids younger, what is it, what are different job paths look like? What does the economy look like? You know, not give them just a work hard and you'll make it, honey. I yeah. think like you gotta give them a more realistic sense of what's actually going on so that they can make better decisions about how they um, sort of process uh, earning a home, building an income, those kinds of things. I mean, simple yeah. things. If you start saving $20 a month when you're 18 for retirement, you're going to be so much better off than when you started putting um, however many thousand in your 50s because <laughs> of the power of accruing that. So it's yeah. like teaching people some basic things that leverage the system that we have. Because the fact of the matter is we do live in a capitalist system. It does bias towards asset wealth. So what can we do to help people be smarter about what's happening with asset wealth, avoid the pitfalls, particularly when it comes to loans and other kinds of scams and be able to build wealth in a, in a steady and responsible way and place themselves in a place where they'll feel so much better overall. Right. And that's, yeah, and that's one path, right? And the other path for, for those who, who, who sit in a position of privilege may be to become more comfortable and less aggressively oppositional toward a welfare economy. If you, if you come from a position of empathy and you look at the system as it is, and you're a person who cares for your neighbor and loves your neighbor, and is not just going to tell your neighbor to pull themselves up by bootstraps that they don't have any boots on, you know, then you come to come and can say, oh, okay, I get now why we need social security and Medicare and why we might need health care for all and why even something as radical years ago, it seemed radical. Now it seems completely obvious, um, like a guaranteed basic income for citizens who are impacted or maybe all citizens, since everybody, to your point, works, let's just give it to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, it'll be nothing for Jeff Bezos, but it's going to make a lot of people that work on our church staff a, a, a whole lot safer. You, you, these social nets are critical in a world where your economic progress is not up to you. That's, That's what I think people have to understand. If right. you really are empathetic, you have to own the idea that you're, you are not totally in control unless you've got enough money to save yourself and all your family, which some people do, yeah. but unless you have all that, your future economic interest is determined often by somebody making a decision for you in a, some other place that has no idea who you are. Yeah. Why wouldn't we build a safety net under those people? Yeah. And But the problem, I think, is that you have to come to a radical crisis moment where you realize that the market isn't free and it's not this all-seeing hand that works perfectly and without manipulation would be great that it actually is a force uh, a system itself that has been specifically fine-tuned to benefit a particular group of people and we can own that and there may be only certain things we can do about that but what is the harm in building a safety net for those who are going to be impacted most by that right. it's just empathy no, that's correct. And the historic example is uh, Social Security. Social Security program has been the most successful program that we've had to keep people out of poverty. Um, and uh, nobody questioned it, even though every now and then there's a push against it. The, the Social Security is something that's so grand and everybody agrees has been so helpful. That's not going to be taken away. Um, it certainly costs money. <laughs> frankly, almost everything costs money. You know, there is a cost of money for the military, of course. There's a cost of the money that we spend on a lot of other things that we could mention here. But we know that there's money that's being given away literally to only build up asset wealth yeah. in the name of the economy. And I think we need to learn better to perceive what actually are we building up? There was a time when we spent a lot on education and we felt that that was better for our country. Now, yeah. there's a lot of people who say, no, we just need to keep our businesses strong. And um, I question whether that's the best investment to make overall when not everyone truly benefits. You know? 
So the, yeah. the, the stock market goes up, not everybody gets a job. You know, when the stock market yeah. goes up, that doesn't mean I'm less sick. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, I don't get smarter, you know, because the stock market goes up. There's there's uh, investments that we can be much smarter about, but because of these old notions of it's my property, it's my money, you know, mm-hmm. therefore don't take it from me for what I think frankly becomes what they perceive as undeserving people who right. are wasteful, you know, um, they, they shouldn't yeah. have it because they waste the money. I don't waste my money. But that comes full circle back right around to the doctrine of discovery. It's like we haven't even left just to bring things right back to the beginning because we have to kind of come to an end now. We could talk about this all day long, but just to bring it full circle now, it comes back to land property and labor which of course all of which we've stolen and and we've stolen it and taken it from people who we thought were not using it wisely we're wasting it right to your point right here we are now living in a, an economy that is very similar to that same idea that idea has never been lost the idea of how we thought about the indigenous and how we thought about africans is still with us in the economy we built based on that very idea and so here we are living in that system and we have to go back all the way to the beginning and, and examine these notions of land and property and labor and understand how they relate to our faith again. And you've given us a foundation today to begin to, to start that excavation process for ourselves from an economic perspective. And it's been enlightening to me. I mean, I feel like I've been all over. I've been on a journey through world history and back uh, with you. So I just, as we come to the end, uh, Dr. Marty, it's been always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We're so grateful for the work that you're doing. Keep up the great work, keep writing great books, and uh, we hope to see you participating in, in what we're doing at Myers Park. And just, it's always a pleasure. So thank you so much. Thank you, always a pleasure. Thank you.